Broadcasting from everywhere and nowhere, the Misfit Crew at Southfleet HQ is proud to bring you the Dive Living Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Die Living Podcast brought to you by Softleet, uh, Loophold Optics, Freedom Munitions, Combat Flip Flops, and CrossFit Suismante in Durham and Raleigh. Uh, this week, we've got uh, a little bit different of an episode than we usually have instead of having the whole crew here. I'm sitting here with my friend Jared, and I think we're going to chat about... Uh, well, a few things that we have probably touched in general on other shows, like in a bunch of different areas, but, uh, you know, I, I think kind of combine a bunch of things into into one one good story. Let's do it all, man. Yeah, man. Um, Jared, I'm going to let you introduce yourself in a second, but um, I'm glad you could join us today. Appreciate you coming out. Of course. And uh, looking forward to the conversation. So without further ado... Let's uh, let's kick it off. Yeah, you know, any, anybody who buys me lunch, I'm gonna do them a favor. At least sitting <laughs> around the table and having a conversation is, with. Uh, uh, it's all you gotta do, man. Just come down for lunch, and <laughs> you know, it's a a small price to pay for us, I guess. Yeah, so and it's be, a good to lunch be blessed too. With your presence. Oh come on now! <laughs> what you can't see is that I'm blushing majorly right now. So yeah. Aaron left, can see it, but we'll have to do video in the future. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So I guess uh, I will. Like it's just a brief intro. Yeah, um, man. Tell us about yourself. Uh. So I've been in the military for roughly 14 years, all mm-hmm. of which has been in the soft community. So for those of you people who know what an 18 X-ray is, you come in off the streets and go right into special forces. So that that's how I got started. Well, um, I mean, do you want me to explain that a little bit more? A little bit, because it's not okay. when you say you come right off the streets and go into special yeah, forces. Yeah, you know, that, like that hand you a gun and a uniform, like, and they're like, "Here you go." As you get off the bus, <laughs> here you <laughs> yeah. go, buddy. You've been selected. Yeah, like oh, get like, after crap. it. Uh, so when I, I, when I graduated, I was in high school when nine 11 happened. And right. at the time I didn't know what I was going to, that those feelings of like, Oh my gosh, I have to do something about this. They didn't, they haven't never have really like struck a chord with me. So it was just something I always knew as a little kid. Like you can ask my mom and my older brother and I would be out in the woods playing our commando yeah. when we were kids. And that's, so it's, it's kind of the, um, just kind of the, it's more of a job calling than a yeah. pa- than a patriotic calling. Yeah, absolutely. Which is not to say that you're not a patriot. Correct. But. Yeah, it was just like this is kind of what I always knew I was gonna do. Right. Like regardless so, of nine eleven or not. Yeah, were, I mean that, that is a hor- that was a horrible horrible tragedy, but yes. Um, but you were this was already a path that you were headed. Absolutely. Yeah. In the direction of if not completely down already. Now that being said, like when I graduated high school, I did not go right in the military. I think I was like, oh, yeah, I entertained the thought, but I was like, you know what? I got this route to school. Uh, um, you know, I had a, a scholarship for just the tuition. So, I, you mm-hmm. know, there were a lot of things that I d- it didn't pay for, but by and large, the majority of my schooling was free. Sure. Was um, that an athletic scholarship? No, it was, it was, it was basically a tuition or not a tuition. It was a, it was a lottery, a state right. lottery thing, you know, like, well, that's if, cool. if you maintain a certain GPA, you, you get tuition for free. So, All right. so I still kept my job at a local gym and mm-hmm. and uh, worked thirty hours a week or whatever to pay the rest of the bills. But um, that was that. I went right into school. And I had no idea what I was going to do. 
And then eventually I just got tired of it. I got bored and it was challenging, but I just didn't want, didn't want to rise up to that challenge when I felt like there's a whole other challenge that I'm just putting off. That you I knew need. you were going to do at some point. Yeah. I mean, put, delaying the inevitable. Yeah. I think, I don't know. Like there was always that, uh, the, the, the fear of the unknown type thing. Like, Oh, I don't know if that, you know, is that something I just did as a kid or is that something that I'm, that I'm destined to do no matter what? Um, yeah, it was really weird. Uh, a recruiter walked into my work one day and dropped off a bunch of brochures for some guy jumping out of, out of, a, out of a plane, you know, special forces. And I was like, you know what? Finally flipped that's the switch. It. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. I felt like that's what I'd always wanted to do. Of course I knew nothing about any of that stuff. Sure. I did my best friend who is still my best friend to this day was in range battalion. And so he had given me some, some clues as to how, how it really was. And had he gone right out of high school? He had. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he actually got out, um, just a month or two before nine 11 happened. All right. And, and chose not to go back in despite the fact that all of his mates had already deployed mm-hmm. at that point. So, um, anyway, I went down to recruiter's office and signed up and then not shortly thereafter, but a decent time after maybe a year, uh, there was some haggling to do with me getting the job that I wanted because initially I was like, well, you know, I know I have a pretty good idea about what it's like to be a ranger. That's the path I want to go. And what most recruiters don't tell you when you walk into the office is they're never going to get you what you want unless you, you know, basically put your foot down and cry like a baby or throw some sort of tantrum. Mm-hmm. And then they, in order to get you to stop, they give you finally what you want. So, so if you're out there listening to this, like, and you know someone or you're thinking about going to the military, you can get whatever job you want, period. They just will tell you that they can't, which is a, just a tact. Hold, a tactic out, that they hold out until you get what you want. Yeah, absolutely. I held out for over a year. All right. And then when they finally, at one point, uh, the recruiter told me, well, you have to, you're still enrolled in classes. You have to disenroll before mm-hmm. we can let you sign a contract, which, you know, I was still only 18 or 19 at the time. Like I believed him like an idiot. So I disenrolled from classes and I went down to the recruiting station and they still didn't have the job that I wanted. So I was like, okay, well that's it. I'm done. Like you can just throw my contract away cause I'm not gonna go in for anything less. Yeah. And then it, it kind of turned into this, sh- there was a little bit of a shouting match because uh, obviously I was, I had wasted a year of my life thinking I'm going to go in mm-hmm. and be a ranger. But, uh, I, on my way out, some other guy could see that I was not in a very good mood and pulled me into his office, trying to get me to calm down. And, uh, and he was like, well, no one's told you about this 18 x-ray program. And I was like, no, of course, no, you know, what is that? And right. he was like, well, this is, it's basically, you know, like a, it's not a free pass. It is like a contract guarantee you that you will go into special forces training. All right. And then from there, it's kind of on you. Like, sure. So, so I was like, that's, that must be my calling. Like, cause if I can't get this other, you know, if I can't get a ranger contract, then, mm-hmm. then I'll go and do that. And right. then, you know, the, from there it started and that was, that was pretty much it. Yeah. What was it like? Uh, I mean, going right into, well, you had what, like SOPSI or some type of selection prep. Yeah. And so that was it. I mean, it was daunting for sure. Uh, basic and AIT were probably, probably the most miserable 14 weeks of my entire life. Were you in pretty good shape at this point? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I went into it, um, 
went into the military in pretty good shape. I had uh, met a really good dude at the gym and we trained together. And then uh, I'm from the mountains out West. So I was always hitting mm-hmm. the mountains up as much as I could like, and getting some serious altitude training. So I was in, I was in pretty good shape, I would say. And I'm not like tooting my own horn or anything, but I wanted to be ready Yeah, because I, from everything I had heard, like special forces is pretty, I mean, you've got to be the best. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, if I'm, if that's what I'm going to be competing against, like I have to show up at my best. So, so like I said, basic and AIT was just miserable because you couldn't stay in the shape that you wanted to. You were constantly being messed with. Like it was a total, total shit show. But, um, and then airborne school was airborne school at the time in airborne school, our ranger recruiter stopped in and asked if anyone wanted to get, go to ranger battalion. And I was like, Oh, this is my opportunity because in my, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking there's no way I'm going to make it through special forces training. Even though I was like, you know, okay. Yeah. I had good grades and I was Mm -hmm. in good shape, but I, you have nothing to compare yourself to Mm -hmm. really. So I'm thinking there's, I just don't feel like I can compete with the best, but I do know that I can. Was that from just, you know, some kind of like self, self imposed limit or from seeing some of the guys you were with in, you know, basic NAIT where you, I mean, it was yeah. surrounded by these physical. Yeah, you know, there was studs. a lot of that. So most of my basic training company was, um, I mean, they were studs mm-hmm. by and large. Mostly like guys also that were doing the same contracts. contract. Yep. Right. Yep. I mean, there was a noticeable difference between the people who were going in on 18 x-ray and those who were just going in to be infantrymen. Mm-hmm. So we all went through a, infantry basic training. Um, and part of the reason why my, that time was so miserable is, for me is because the particular pl- platoon that I was in was the majority of it was made up of regular infantry folks, not people who were going into 18 X-ray. Whereas the other platoons, the majority of which were 18 X-ray uh, folks, so you could tell like they bonded a lot better. Mm-hmm. They had a lot more in common because they were all striving to hit the same goal. Yeah, and sure. so it was motivating for them to you know wake up next to each other and go through hardships together, knowing mm-hmm. that like, Hey, this is just the beginning. We're going to be fine. Whereas, you know, when I go to bed every night, I got to worry that I'm, I don't get, you know, choked out in the middle of my sleep or no one's going to clean the bathroom tomorrow. I can almost guarantee it that those types of things. So it was miserable for sure. Were you routinely getting choked out in the middle of your uh, sleep? It did happen a couple of times. Like I, I did, an, I definitely got jumped in my sleep a couple of times. Am I just that naive? Is that a normal thing? I don't know, man. It was definitely a wake up call because I grew up in suburbia and that's not, you know what I mean? Like, you know, yeah, you gotta, you gotta go looking for stuff like that. But here it was right in front of me. Like, yeah. and that wasn't even the worst. Like, yeah, you're going to get in fights. I get it. People are uncomfortable and they're emotional because they've been away from home for the first time in their lives. What I didn't like was just the lack of discipline and Mm -hmm. the people's like, you know, their just unwillingness to, to really help out and, and and be a part of a team. Right. And so I could tell then like, okay, I'm not, I am not like everyone else in that, in that extent. Mm -hmm. And there were some people that I could form bonds with. And we, we eventually like, you know, you just get through those hardships. Yeah. So like any other ones, you just got to find a way to, find that light at the end of the tunnel. All right. So you, I mean, you went through that, obviously you went to SFAS and well, let me go back to airborne school. All right. So the, uh, the recruiter oh, yeah, was the like, Ranger. Yeah. Yeah. Recruiter. He's like, Hey, does anyone want to go to Ranger battalion? And I'm like, yeah, that's definitely me. Like I didn't think I was going to make it or whatever. 
anyway, I put my name on his list. And then a couple of days later, he called me and a couple other guys back in and was like, hey, uh, you're not allowed to give up that contract. So for the DOD in general, I'd put a precedence on those 18 x-ray contracts. Mm-hmm. And they weren't going to let people back out of them for any reason. So basically, you had to quit, which I was not willing to do. I was willing to take a different route, but I was sure. not willing to quit. So, All right. <clears throat> so that closed that door for you. I mean, like mentally at the time, were you okay with that? Or did that, did you feel like, man, you know, my, my dream is kind of going away? Or, yeah. you know, at that point, were you, did you? I just felt, it felt like the mountain had just gotten a lot taller. Did you understand at the time too that like the mission difference between Ranger Battalion and Special Forces? I did or? because because of my because of my friend who is I I consider a mentor. He was a, a few years older than me, and of course he had already been in the military. So sure. not only did he tell me what Ranger Battalion is like, but he kind of like brought me up as a as a 17, 16, 17 year old in those like hey this is what is expected of you mm-hmm. in that type of community in that type of brotherhood. Right. And he also didn't know what special forces was like because he was never there. Mm-hmm. But he could say that, hey, like, you know, he basically reaffirmed all the assumptions I had made in my own mind. Those are the best of the best. You got to be an expert at everything. Yada, yada, as I spit all over your mic. <laughs> it's all good, man. I'm sure. Uh, I hope that you clean these off every that's, time. That's Brian's mic. So. <laughs> <laughs> Where else has this thing been? Right. Uh, so yeah, I was, like I said, I, it felt like the mountain got a hell of a lot taller and sure. I'm like, Ooh, here we go. Like, but again, that's, I, and I, that's something that is a, a part of me and my foundation as a person now is resiliency and, mm-hmm. you know, my drive to, to succeed. So, so when you got to selection, I mean, how, how did it compare, you know, how, how tall was the mountain compared to what you anticipated it to be? You know, well, there- after Sopsy. There, there was, there was no comparison. So mm-hmm. that was the wake up call for sure. It was the prep course before mm-hmm. uh, selection, which is not, from what I'm told, is not what it used to be. Rigor wise, physically, mentally, they just, they're not allowed to put those candidates through as much stress anymore. So, um, by the time, I, you know, I'm like everyone else. Oh, I, I was the last hard class. Um, <laughs> this is in, in this day. is in like 2004. All right. So. The SOPSI program had only been up and running for roughly a year and a half, maybe mm-hmm. two. Like it was still in its nascent stages and they almost, the cadre were still kind of figuring it out in a sense too. But their success, their, the data was there. Like the success rates were astronomical. People who had gone through SOPSI had over like a 95% success rate at selection and that continued with my class. Mm-hmm. By the time we made it to selection, me and my peers, you know, our SOPSI class went from roughly... Uh, I think we're, we started off with somewhere in the ballpark of like 130 and, or no, it, it was like 180 and we end up sending like 70, 60 or 70. So that many people had quit or been kicked out before selection, before selection even started. Yeah. All right. But it sounds like, I mean, Sopsy was really the kick in the dick for you. Oh yeah. I mean, were there times during that that you were thinking, man, I've made a mistake. Not, not, not a single day. No, no, no. I think at that point I had most of the people that I was there with, I had gone through basic training with. Mm-hmm. So those bonds were beginning, beginning to form like, and, and suffering only makes those bonds even stronger. Mm-hmm. So if you think, you know, Oh, I'm, I'm questioning my friendship with this person or, you know, whether or not, you know, we could bond really well. Um, 
suffering is either going to break those relationships apart or it's going to drive them even closer together. And that's exactly what it did right. for everyone. And the people I was questionable about, questionable about going into it were not there at the end of it. Mm-hmm. And those who I, whom I weren't questionable about were, were there at the end. So in that sense, you're like, at that point you can look around to your left and right and know like, okay, I'm beginning to, to see who, who's got what it takes to make it to the end. Whether sure. they all made it to the end or not is uh, irrelevant. Mm-hmm. They had made it through what we considered to be the hardest part at that point. Sure. And even though we did know it was, it, how much harder it was going to get, mm-hmm. it was like, okay, that was miserable. I mean, it was five weeks of like hell. Like it was brutal. Yeah. And at the end of it, we all we got was a handshake. And it was just like, that was the greatest feeling I've ever had up to that point in my life. Getting that handshake? That was it. Yeah. Who I oddly enough, I ran into that guy years years later. Um, when you say that guy, the guy that gave you the handshake, correct? Yeah, who was he was pretty brutal. Like there was no excuse for what he like. This is, this is one of the sopsy cadre. Yeah, yeah. He put us through some serious shit. Like six days a week, we we hardly ever got a full weekend in the six five or six weeks that we were there at sopsy. Mm-hmm. And mo- most days consisted of like so. We back then we had the gig pits. And they were like 20 foot by 20 foot sandbagged areas that were either full of sand or full of water or full of both. And and you spent a majority of your morning and afternoon and or evening in those pits just getting smoked. Because um, was, that was their idea of like, okay, this is how we break people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they didn't like give you impossible tasks. It was just like, who can suck the most? And so... You know, and he, um, and the cadre that I had, I'm not going to roast him on on this uh, podcast, but I mean, he was particularly brutal. And there were some of the other cadre who I didn't have who were considered possibly worse, but but he was up there. He, he was one of the he was he was he kind had of a reputation. Dick. Yeah, he was just for fucking with people, just to fuck with people. All right. So, um, when he like lined us all up at the end of it, and then like shook our hands and was like, "Hey, good luck." It, it, that was like. Like you'd earn that guy's respect. Oh yeah, finally, man, that was right? it. Even though I didn't really like him as a person, I I knew by then that why he was doing what he was doing mm-hmm. because he didn't want to send substandard people to selection. That's how much it meant to him, and that's how much it meant to us. So, in that sense, I, I was grateful. And then years later, I think uh, how long ago was that? So that was probably I think ten years to the day almost. I ended up. Uh, running into him again. This is long after I'd made it to the the organization that I'm at now. And he, at the time I was going through SOPSI, he was actually training up to go to the, the organization that I'm at now. All right. And so he, uh, he tables was... Tables turned, huh? Yeah, he was in great shape back then. Mm-hmm. And then I ran into him, uh, you know, 10 years later, and he was a support person for that organiza- organization, not like an operator, so to speak. And But I recognized him right away in 10 years... It, I hadn't seen him in 10 years and then I saw him and I'm like, holy crap, man. You know, you, you probably don't remember me, but I remember you. I definitely remember <laughs> you. I right. don't even have to see a name tape on your, on your shirt. Like I know who you are. And, uh, and you could tell like he had like a little glimmer in his eye, like, holy crap. Like one of my guys made it. Yeah. And he didn't, he was, you could tell it, it, it was a weird thing for kind about a second. And then, sweet. yeah. And yeah. he was just like, man, you could, he was not, he wasn't the same person at all. I think he had been humbled in his life and he was grateful for what he had done. And he was proud of, of, you know, at least partly in me and, and, you know, my mates. Cause of course I told him who else 
had made it through there, but um, actually, I think it might might have been the only one. <laughs> well. But but anyway, uh, yeah, those bonds formed in Sopsy carried us all the way through the rest of the Q course, and um, mm-hmm. I don't know what the success rate was of the people in my basic training class, mm-hmm. but in my Sopsy class, it was probably probably seventy five percent of my of the people who made it through Sopsy made it all the way through to the key right. course. And so obviously, you, you know, you went through selection, you got selected, went through the Q course and, you know, became a Green Beret. And you were in first group. Yep. Is that right? Right straight out to Okinawa. Yep. All right. Um, and at some point you decided that you wanted to kind of continue the journey, correct? Yeah. So, you know, what was the, you know, in your mind, was it, hey, I want to, you know, kind of just continue to see like how high up this ladder I can go? Was it, hey, I want to do a different type of job? You know, what was the, what was kind of the motivating factor for you? That, that's the perfect analogy to use is like, is the ladder thing. Cause it, uh, a typical feeling nowadays in throughout the special forces regiment mm-hmm. is that a lot of guys feel like once they make it through the Q course, that that's it like there is the ladder doesn't go any higher. They've done what they wanted to do in life and they're just fine mm-hmm. staying right there and doing just that, which is okay. Like there's a reason that that there's that the special forces regiment is a lot bigger than my organization, but some people just that's their, now their laurels and that's all they're ever going to do and that they don't want to do anything else. And they, and that's, that's it. Mm-hmm. And that leads to complacency and a sense of entitlement that's I think is rampant now within the special forces regiment. Um, mostly because of the people that I know that I trust that I, that I have met that I know are like people that rise above that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. They're frustrated, their command in their command and in their peers and in their organization as a whole, it's, it's bogged down by people who've, who've quote unquote made it. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's it. They don't have any other aspirations. Yeah. In life, so, so. That actually, man, that leads me to a number of questions. But you know, one of the things that you that you talked about when you, you know you're talking about going through basic and AIT was that the guys that were on the 18 X-ray program with you, there was kind of this like bond of, hey, we're all going through this together, and especially you know going through SOPSI, that that's just strengthening those bonds. And I'm I'm guessing that you genuinely wanted to see not only you know, obviously yourself succeed, but you genuinely wanted to see all of those other people succeed oh, yeah. at SFAS. If you knew they weren't trying to cut corners or, you know, sure. like, yeah. Assuming, you, the, yes, assuming you think that they're yeah, good guys. It's that whole adage, like, you never know who's watching type thing. And it, with that, we, we use that to think about, like, oh, a superior might be watching. But the reality is it's that your peers might be watching. And if they see you cheat on something or... Mm-hmm. Or, you know, or take the easy, the easy wrong over the hard right. Like it's your peers are the ones who are going to see that. And then it's, it's your reputation to them that is really affected. Sure. So, so did you experience that same thing when, you know, you're at, when you were a Green Beret and you're, you're either committed to or thinking about going back to selection, like were, were your peers equally as supportive? Um, did you feel like, there was, you know, any type of feeling of what you were saying before, you know, like, hey, man, no, you've already made it. Like, we're already here. Why are you doing this? Was there, you know, questioning or 
or was it really more, you know, the other way, Hey, maybe I'm comfortable where I'm at, but awesome for you for continuing the journey. I, I, I was fortunate enough to be in an environment where it was, it was supported like greatly mm-hmm. for sure. Um, what, when I left first group, it, the company I was in was full of guys who rose to the occasion who were like always pushing their limits and, and trying to get better at their jobs. That didn't mean that they all wanted to go and do like tier one stuff and do that because there's a lot of different things that is special forces do that tier one don't. Um, but they were like self improvers. They were, uh, you know, they, they had a desire to master their trade, mm-hmm. so to speak and not get complacent or not be satisfied with, you know, okay, you know, or, or good. Um, they wanted to be the best, so to speak. So there was only one organization in the army that is better than the special forces regiment. So when people aspired to go to that organization, um, you know, by and large, I would say most people in the, in the special forces regiment are encouraging others to do that because when guys go to a training like that, or they have a chance to go to a, a tier one organization or, you know, a, a special missions unit, even if they don't make it all the way through the training or, or even if they go and they have to come back, which happens mm-hmm. for a number of different reasons, you're always bringing back something with you that you can't get anywhere else. It's a certain level of experience that you just can't find in other organizations throughout the military or really anywhere in the world. You're saying so. simply going through the selection process, Correct. no matter what the outcome yeah. is giving you valuable, you know, valuable experience to bring back to whatever unit it is that you may go to. Yeah. And it's uncomparable. Like it's you from the time you show up at, you know, uh, like an SMU selection, it it becomes increasingly apparent, like from the very moment you arrive that, that it's something completely different, mm-hmm. like from anything else you experienced in your military career. And it, it, I mean, it'll, to put it plainly, it'll knock your socks off. Like it's because it's so professional and it, and I know particularly in my organization, we take great pride in that um, process. Mm-hmm. It, there's so much value placed in there because we want to be absolutely as close as possible to 100% certainty that we're getting the right person. Sure. Period. It's not about like who's best or anything like that. It's about who who's the right, right person for it. So everything is deliberately done in a specific way to ensure that we we're filtering out the people who don't belong, the people who do. Can you talk a little bit more about how the difference, how you differentiate between the right person and the best person? So I'm not, I've never been in charge of that portion of my, and I'm not even asking like for specifics. Yeah. Yeah. I I see what you're saying. I think most people would think it's a question I get all the time. Yeah. Right. So uh, it, it's more about, now, other organizations, other tier one organizations, all take a different, um, a different uh, look or a different view of their own selection processes. And then I'm not privy to that information, so I don't know how what to them is the right person. Mm-hmm. All I can only speak for what how, you know my own experience, and, and that's sure. my organization. But it's uh, it's about it's it's about a number of different things. But really, at the pri- at the top part of it is like, of course, you want somebody who's like who can act within a legal moral framework or ethical, so to speak, um, with minimal guidance. Mm -hmm. So, you know, trust is, is, is key. And so the question is, how do you, how do you measure trust in someone that you've only just met? 
-hmm. or, you know, you're getting this person who's showing up and he's got a resume, sure, and he's done some physical performance stuff, but how how does that relate to trust in any way whatsoever? I mean, theoretically, the people that are showing up, like you don't just get to sign your name on a list, right? I mean, you've already gone through some type of process. Correct. Yeah. You've already been highly recommended. You know, you've been vetted essentially to a certain extent to get there to begin with. Right? Correct. Yeah. So to simply get invited to to one of those selections is it it for most people that's the that's the high that will be the high point of their career. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how selective getting invited is, and then you know any any more phases that you make it past that is you're you're just your your their number of peers is is reduced itself to, you know, fract, we're talking fractions, mm-hmm. decimal points of, I mean, there's only so, so many people that have made it through like SMU selections in the history of the U S military right? compared to how many people have served. I mean, we're talking point zero 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 zero, probably, sure. probably seven or eight zeros of the number of, of total people. So it's incredibly exclusive. I don't mean to say that it as, you know, because it's uh, to be an elitist, but it is elite. So those, you know. Oh, it's the reality of the situation. Exactly. Right? That's the whole the, point. The so. numbers are not subjective. Right. Um, so, yeah, I'm sorry. So how do you how do you decide if, you know, how do you judge the trustworthiness of an individual that you've only just met? Well, it, I mean, so I don't know if you've ever heard of Stephen M. R. Covey. Um, mm-hmm. So Stephen Covey is a guy who wrote a book called the, I think it's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Leaders. All right. For many decades, he wrote about like what it takes to be an effective leader. And of course he was talking about, for the most part, about the corporate world, but the way he wrote and and the content that in his books, he, he, it basically correlates with any industry in any part of Mm -hmm. the world, really. His son wrote a book called The Speed of Trust. And in that, in those, you know, he does talks on it too. He, he talks about how long it takes to build trust and what goes into that. And basically the framework for it is like, you know, yes, you're going to take a reputation into an environment, but really it's about your character as a person. So, you know, what goes into character, we can go down that road forever and ever, but so character and then, and then performance. So Mm -hmm. this is, you are, you you know, you are who you say you are and you live up to the standard that we've built and of the person, the right person, uh, and then your ability to perform. And so you take those and you say, okay, I, if, the, if a person meets those two categories to a certain extent, then I know that I have the, we have the potential to build the right amount of trust to be able to bring this person in our organization and allow him to operate freely um, to basically get the mission done, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, is extremely important. And then beyond that, it's, Yes, intelligence has something to do with it, as well as like physical ability. Obviously, if you weren't physically um, capable, then you wouldn't be able to make it all the way through the course. But the mental toughness that comes with that and be able to endure that that kind of suffering and your ability beyond that, once selection is over, your ability to, to be trained or trainable, so to speak, mm-hmm. takes a much, much larger role in the whole the whole scheme of things. Because if you are mentally tough and you're physically tough and you've got a, a high IQ and you are legally and morally and ethically like sound and your compass is pointing in the right direction, but 
it's difficult for you to learn new things. Uh, learning agility is another term that I've heard recently that that kind of like strikes a chord. Like your ability mm-hmm. to to adapt to new challenges and learn and overcome them in the shortest amount of time greatly determines whether or not you you can succeed. So. And is that something you guys are able to effectively do in selection? I mean, there's a lot of training in the military that kind of like helps you build that. You, mm-hmm. As a as a person, as a mature adult, you've got to be able to find those opportunities when they arise in, in your military experience or in any experience in life. And for some people, that's difficult to do. They just don't see that correlation and say like, to be able to, to have the judgment to look through any situation that you might encounter in your life and be able to learn as much as you possibly can from it mm-hmm. in the sh- in a short amount of time. Like a lot of us, it's kind of like that, you know, like have no regrets as you get older. Um, you Basically, you shouldn't be looking back on your life many years ahead and saying like, oh man, I can't believe I didn't learn that lesson back then. Like that's not, you're not probably not the person that we're looking for. Like you make, people make mistakes, sure. make a mistake, learn from that and, and never do it again. Mm-hmm. Like, learn to adapt at a, at a high rate of speed more or less. So sure. Was, <clears throat> was this second selection more difficult than SFAS? There's no or, question. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's probably the, it may not be the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Physically. But, uh, yeah, but as a single event the, mm-hmm. it over the duration of the time of that course, it was, it was probably the hardest thing. I've ever done, but there's no, if you take any one of those days that I was there, that it wasn't like, oh my God, that I'll never do anything that hard again. But stacking them up one after the yeah, other? Continuously for the, yeah. for the period that you're there is just like, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's, it's kind of like awesome to think back on it and be like, wow, that's, inc-. and then some people go through it multiple times because yeah. they don't get selected the first time or something. And I've always been impressed with people like that. Like, I always said when I went to that to sel- the selection that I would give it one shot, and if I if they didn't uh, if I didn't make it or they didn't they didn't want me, then then mm-hmm. that was it. I was never going to try again. So I guess it's fortunate that I did make it. Was it hard balancing that type of mindset of, hey man, I'm going to do this once. This is like my one shot, um, but also being able to give it your all. You know, it seems like on the on the surface that those two things might be somewhat incongruous. Yeah. You know, if you're going into it kind of like, hey, you know, like whatever happens, happens. Um, well, it but, wasn't it wasn't that. It was just the. It's not like uh, it, you know, I wasn't. Uh, oh, I'm not going to careless isn't the right word. It wasn't like freelance. Laissez faire. Yeah, laissez faire. Thank you. It was like you know, it was that like I'm not going to spend my whole life trying to do something that I may not be meant to do. Like mm-hmm. it may not just be in the cards for me. Sure. So I, I picked the point in my career where I, you know, I was like, okay, I'm ready to, to, to try to be the best, to go work with the best. Um, and, and if I don't make it like now is the best time I'm in a great, you know, I was at the right age. I felt like I had the right maturity, the right amount of experience. Mm-hmm. It's just a judgment call that everyone has to make. Sure. So like, do you, you know, for yourself, do you figure, do you think that you're ready to take on a challenge like that? And then when I decided that I did, I was like, this is it. Like I have to, I have to give it everything I got because I'm not going to come back. And 
in general, um, or I guess in with you know whatever detail you want to share, you know how has the organization been compared to what you anticipated? I think the first few years it um, it kind of surpassed everything that I imagined could be possible. Mm-hmm. Just from a simple the simple point of decentralization, which is unlike the rest of the military at all. So, like uh, I think a lot of guys. The, like we spoke about earlier, the fear of the unknown with a lot of guys in other army organizations like special forces, they reach a certain level of uh, comfortability where they the leash is extended a little bit longer and it's like, all right, you're a big boy, you can take care of yourself. Yes, you have rules that you have to you have to live and work by. but by and large like you're you're a professional, you're a senior NCO, like you can handle yourself and you have a, a pretty good amount of responsibility that pales in comparison to what we do at my organization now. And it's just kind of shocking to compare the two because it's, unless you've been put in that position of responsibility, you don't know what you're capable of sometimes Mm -hmm. as a, as a person. So, and again, that goes back to selecting the right person for the, for the job. I mean, is this the, like the leeway that you're given to accomplish different training tasks? Absolutely. Yeah. Or training tasks or real world missions like, you know, you don't get that leeway without like, like we said, trust right? and, uh, you know, adaptability and, you know, your reputation. So, um, we have a reputation for, for having like no, a no fail, like a no fail, like that is it. That's our, that is our standard. So when you mm-hmm. constantly live up to that, standard like you develop a reputation of not perfection but you know excellence in a lot of ways so right that doesn't mean the leash will always get longer and longer and longer it just means that like when someone needs something they're more likely to turn to you and say like can you know can you do this right what is i mean how do you balance then at that point the you know the leeway that you're given you know whether that's in terms of, you know, operational decisions or simple things like, a, you know, very relaxed dress code or something like that from kind of soaking in to the point where you get too relaxed. Like how do you stay on that edge where, you know, you, you're maximizing freedom without, you know, going overboard and, and shirking responsibility? That's a, like one of the greatest questions in all of like corporate America too, right? Like, yeah. How like and that may be the perfect segue into a discussion about leadership because ultimately that's what it comes comes down to is as leaders where do we you know those those boundaries aren't always like written down or they're not always posted on the wall for everyone to see in a mm-hmm. conspicuous area like a lot of times that's within your own mind and if you don't talk about it or if you don't like you know have an open forum where people can be comfortable you know like pushing those boundaries and, and being open to, to talk about them, then it can be, it can leave things a little too gray. And, and although, you know, in order to succeed in a line of work like this, you have to be able to work in the gray, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It, the world can't be black and white because there are so many things in the world that don't fit in those parameters. Um, it, it's, it really comes down to, to leadership and on the individual level and on the, well, really, yeah, on the individual level and then on the team level too, like your your maturity, your level of maturity and your ability to to understand how people work and how they affect you and how you affect others and 
Um, again, like I said, I was going down the leadership route. Like lately for me, it's been the last year for me has been, a, a, I won't call it a resurgence, but it's been a new, uh, I, I've come across like a new understanding of what it really means to be a leader outside of what, you know, the army values and the things that the army, you know, like wants their soldiers and, and leaders to emulate. Mm-hmm. And it, it goes a, a lot deeper than that because of um, just inherent to the environment that we work in. Like you have to, you have to be, be able to go to expand your understanding of, of everything, like your emotions, your, who you are as a person mentally and physically, like everybody's a little bit different. So I may not be able to keep up with everyone we're in the gym or on the shooting range or in the, or in the shoot house or whatever, but where am I at as a person? What can I improve? Um, how does that, how do, how does, you know, the time that I take to de- uh, dedicate to improving one of those things, does that affect me elsewhere and affect the members of my team and, uh, and everything from like, wh- what do I say? What's my mood every day? How is that affecting everyone? Am I pessimistic? Am I optimistic? Like, these these are all factors that you've uh, I find myself constantly like going through my head because I want to be as effective as possible and mm-hmm. as a leader and and even if you're not in a quote unquote position of leadership you are a leader to some extent at all times like in every action that you take sure. and everything that you say so well and I guess this you know this goes back to selecting for character quality um, you know I think back to you know, my former career life, if you will. And, you know, there was almost no emphasis placed on character. It was all based on performance, right? So there were a lot of guys that were high performers um, and that were looked to as, you know, kind of like potentially stars of an organization, mm-hmm. uh, but that lacked any type of leadership skill. You know, people, well, if people did look up to them, it was for the wrong reasons. And usually it was younger guys that didn't really understand the difference between, you know, performance and like character or leadership. Um, obviously, you guys don't have that kind of, you know, leeway to just have high performers kind of doing their own thing within the organization. But, uh, you know, I would still, I would think that there's some kind of process where, you know, what, trying to keep people from like straying in that direction. Clearly, you know, you have an organization of people that are like high achievers and high performers. So, you know, is that something that you think like once you make it past the, that kind of like selection gate, that's usually not a problem anymore or. No, we have a saying it's, it goes something like selection is an ongoing process. Like it, it Mm -hmm. never ends. Even after, I, I would argue that even after you leave the organization, like you, that stigma doesn't leave you to a certain extent mm-hmm. because it's a mentality of like, uh, I have to continually get better. It's not a mentality of someone's always watching me and I'm constantly being judged to see if I'm the right person, but it's, I've got a, I have a job that depends on my performance in all aspects of as a person every day. Like mm-hmm. it demands excellence. So if, if I don't show up to work every day fighting to keep that job, by performing like up to and beyond the standard, sure. Then you can expect that your peers are not going to allow you to to function in the role that you're in. Like it's just yeah. not that doesn't 
doesn't bode well for the organization to have people who are dysfunctional or who don't believe in the same culture or the same mentality of the organization. Right. So, but then on the, on the counter side, you know, what are the things that you're doing to combat, even if just personally, you know, burnout or fatigue, right? Like if you're constantly setting this, this expectation, you know, I have to keep improving, which I agree. I mean, not to say that that's like a bad thing. Um, but how do you balance that amount of pressure and not, you know, not keeping your foot, in, no one can have their foot on the gas all the way down to the floor a hundred percent of You're the right. time. Right. Yeah. So, you know, what is it that you are doing or that the organization does to kind of like find that balance and maximize the career longevity? I think the organization does. It's really, it's kind of something that's only come around in the last, uh, maybe 10 years. Um, it's not because it's something that's like been, it's really foreign to the military. I mm -hmm. mean, throughout the military, you can find organizations that are like, you know, we're all about the soldier and the health of the soldier and yada, yada, yada. But you don't really, none of that really has any resonance. Like if you ask people in the military, like very few, if any, mm -hmm. really believe in the military's ability to care for the soldier, like all the way from top to bottom. Mm -hmm. Like there are certain things that the military does yeah, to provide like a certain level of comfort and and happiness and, you know, quality of life for sure. But it but it's not I mean, it's the, the, the military rate has a turn or the military has a turnover rate like you wouldn't see in almost any organization. That's the nature of it. Like people sure. are constantly moving and getting promoted and deployments keep coming and going and it's like there's not they use camaraderie as a way to to form some semblance of a bond, but it usually, it rarely does it last outside of the organization mm -hmm. unless there's like an alumni function or something like that. So, so how does my organization do that? Um, a lot of the, the feelings, the shared values and feelings that, that the members of the organization have transcend a lot of the, what the hurdles that you would see that come along with high performance. And then it really comes down to um, Can you give me an example? Well, or, or, yeah, I mean, just like, I mean, we, you know, a lot of, a lot of military people like to talk about the brotherhood and stuff like that. Like, um, the time that you spend, that you invest in your family and in yourself as a person and in your, your mates, like doing something other than at work is, is the kind of stuff that pays dividends mm -hmm. in all aspects of your life. So, um, there are plenty of introverts at my organization. In fact, there are probably more inverts, introverts than there are extroverts, but that has less to do with it so much as like empathy and um, self-awareness and all these other things that like don't, te te don't tend not to get brought up mm -hmm. in the military, so to speak, but they, that are invaluable because I know that my mates are thinking about me, that they care about me, my leaders, are putting me in a, a dangerous position. I need to know that they w want to see me come out the other side. It's mm -hmm. not like, hey, I'm ordering you to go do this. It's like, hey, do you understand the ramifications, the whole, do you grasp the entire entirety of this situation? Because I want to see you succeed. Mm -hmm. Because when you succeed, the organization succeeds and the rest of us feed off of that type of thing. So I think there's a huge disconnect. Um, if we can go down rabbit holes with this all day, but I definitely want to go down this rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> well, I was going to say what I was going to say was not to get off the military portion of it, sure. but you were talking about like, yeah, how do you, 
you know, that high performance. And I, and I know that that exists in the corporate world, especially when there's so much money on the line. I think there are certain industries, maybe like the financial industry is a little bit harder to find that character, like you were saying, mm -hmm. because performance drives so much of it. But it, the, and that may be the financial industry may be an exception, but I, I think the corporate world in general, at least from what a lot of literature I've read, is that the people who do have that character and can combine it with performance and find that that balance as well as like a healthy dose of humility mm -hmm. are the ones that really have make a lasting impact oh, yeah. on their companies and on their subordinates and on their communities. And those are the same communities and companies that last a long time. Sure. Well, in that... Yes, as leaders for sure. Um, and that's where I think it, it sounds to me, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, um, you know, the difference is that there are some organizations where you have a leader and that leader can be in charge of really high performers that aren't ever expected to be leaders themselves. But what you're saying is, hey, at our organization, like everyone's expected to be a leader. Correct. So there is no room yeah. for a high performer that is like solely focused on their own their own well-being correct yeah um which i think you know you can you can get to that level in other organizations and it's like hey man this guy's a superstar at what he does he's never going to be the ceo he's never going to manage this unit but you know he can still be the top performer in this you know this business unit forever um and he can be a total douchebag but like <laughs> you know the, like he adds to the bottom line and we're not taking him away why do you think that um, is though um I mean, I think that in the corporate world, especially in finance, you know, which is even more objectively measured, uh, especially, you know, in like sales and trading, you know, if you have a guy that is coming in and like hitting home runs every day, you know, if he's a dickhead, like it doesn't <laughs> matter. I mean, his job, if he's a dickhead in a way yeah, that doesn't yeah. violate any type of like HR right. rules, right. you know, it's not going to get you sued or get you on the front page of the newspaper, you know, all of his coworkers can hate him. Like his job isn't to be there necessarily to be a team player. His job is to be there to like execute his right, strategy. Right. And if he's doing that, you know, and he's making a shitload of money. Now, obviously the tolerance for that type of behavior is totally inversely correlated to the performance, right? right. Like guys like that, that don't perform. It's like, why the fuck is this guy here? Right. Um, but you know, I've seen guys perform. There was a guy in my former organization that, you know, it was one of the top performers in the room and, you know, he kept a, a handle of vodka under his desk, you know, and it's like, man, you know, everyone just kind of like turned a blind eye to the fact that this guy was Whatever it takes. You know, making, yeah. making mixed drinks at his desk. And, you know, I think the feeling was like, hey, this guy continues to perform. He's one of the top guys in the room. You know, we don't have issues with him. And, and I, it was never, like, discussed out in the open. I think it was more just like in a... Those uh, things rarely are, yeah. Yeah, it was just a given. Like, you know, that guy never crossed the line of, you know, like puking on the desk or, you know, not being able to stand up. You know, I mean, like, <laughs> it was never to the point where it's like, holy shit, man, like, this guy's got to, you know, he's making an ass of himself from a drinking problem. Um, but at the same time, it's like, hey, like, there's a dude that makes mixed drinks at his desk all afternoon. Um, so the question arises, if any of those things did happen, what then would have been the repercussions? Well, oh, then I think, you know, well, 
Because I think, you, you know what I mean? You got a guy who's, who starts to like veer off the path and who may still be able to perform. I think, but he's, I think for most of those things, most of the time those people would be gone. However, um, there's another company that like a friend of mine worked at and this is kind of, this shows the, I guess the extreme nature of perhaps the, this specific like niche industry mm-hmm. and I'm getting way up. We're getting like, well, yeah, we are. Here, <laughs> you said you wanted to go down the rabbit hole. Well, this wasn't the rabbit hole I wanted to go oh, down. Okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, this guy was, you know, like was a big partier. Um, and he had clients that were also big partiers. And I think one of the reasons that he had those clients wasn't because of his, his skill at work. He wasn't a high performer mm. in the job. Um, but he was a high performer as far as making relationships with like mm. high value clients. Yeah. And his performance level actually got so low due to his lifestyle that they, the organization made a choice, which was we're not going to allow you to do your job anymore. However, the relationships that you have with your wow. customers are so valuable to the firm that basically we're just going to keep you on in a relationship building capacity, which is essentially that sounds like that sounds like a very official type job. Um, basically, it was like you still have the expense account and you're still expected to go out and party with these dudes, but you're not allowed on the work desk anymore. Um, and when I saw that, I mean, it, that was I think there's there's a lot of moral issues there, right? Like mm-hmm. you have a guy who has a substance abuse problem and what you're saying to him is hey, like, you don't even have to come to work anymore. We're Not only are we not helping you, we're enabling it to be even worse. Here's a credit card that, you know, you don't see the bill for. Right. Um, so it's almost less that guy's problem and more the organizational's, correct. the organization's problem but, because uh, they haven't figured that out. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I'm going to back out of this rabbit hole. The yeah. one that I wanted to go down was, you know, one of the things you brought up was, was empathy. And... You know, the very first podcast that we ever recorded uh, as an organization here at Softlead was titled, uh, you know, Sociopathic Tendencies. And I like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, in, in the nature of that conversation was basically saying, hey, you know, research has shown and, and we actually were comparing uh, or not comparing, but we're talking both about the financial like sales and trading industry and the special operations world that you see guys that that succeed ten are basically in two buckets. One, they like have this sociopathic tendency um, where essentially their emotions are turned down, right? So they're not as like risk is not a big of uh, factor for decision making for them. Um, the flip side is that you know the empathy level is like way low. Um, and I, you know, you see that in wall street for sure. The guys that can handle like major amounts of risk without having any stress. The reason they have that is like, not because they're necessarily, some of them it's because they're in a Zen place. Mm. The other ones it's because they're like brains don't work that way. Mm. Um, and you know, I know on that podcast, I talked about a, uh, research study that I don't know if the army did or it was some university did in conjunction with the army. But they were measuring, I think it was cortisol levels of like special operations, specifically special forces guys. uh, And it was before jumping out of airplanes. And what they found was that, 
you know, you basically had two categories of people, people that were like jumping out of an airplane doesn't feel natural ever. Even if I find it exciting, you know, when I walk up to that door, it's like, dude, we're really high up and I'm about to jump out of this airplane. Um, and then, and you know, medically measuring, you know, your, your cortisol levels and other, whatever other chemicals and hormones, um, you can see, Hey, physiologically, whatever this person says, physiologically, their body's showing a reaction to an impending stress event. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you have other people that it's like flatline. Right. So sitting on the bench in the airplane, you're sleeping at night, you're like jumping out the door, you know, doesn't matter. That doesn't change. Um, yeah, man, so, you're, making, you're making me out. To, I'm like, oh my God, am I a sociopath? You're like, Wait a minute. <laughs> this is the worst podcast ever. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Is this what this is about? <laughs> right. I knew I shouldn't you have got, watched. You got me to this point. American Psycho. Yeah. Um, no, well, and I, I think the idea is that, you know, there's a difference between sociopaths and psychopaths and like, and obviously everything's a scale, right? You know, it's not like, you know, hey, you have some of these attributes. And I don't mean you specifically, but like the proverbial you. Right. Uh, that doesn't mean you're like a horrible person. But the podcast, that first podcast was talking about the implications that that has. That's right? a great and first so topic. It was a, we should probably go back to that one because it's also probably one of the worst like actual recordings we ever had. <laughs> it's like a sealed <laughs> a microphone. Of like a, oh, man. A, you know, like a table of eight people. Oh, um, God, yeah. What are they saying? Yeah, but uh, I think that... You know, one of the things that I saw and I've heard, I've heard other people in your line of work say, you know, is that, man, it's really hard to be successful in work and basically like dial back the empathy and then go home at the end of the day and like dial it back up. Um, And so, you know, on, in Wall Street, you know, it's like, man, you have a guy that maybe almost loses his job, you know, loses like a huge sum of money and for different, you know, different careers and different trading desks, like that could be different. It could be $10,000. You know, I've seen dudes lose like five, six million bucks in like fucking, you know, two minutes. And man, that's like a fucking punch in the gut, right? All of a sudden, you know, your year could be like your, you know, the, the profit for your year could be derailed in fucking seconds. And you know, to go home and basically if you can sit through that and not feel anything. And I think, you know, you and I were texting, this is actually goes back to, you and I were texting like a week ago. And you know, I said, I'd recently heard this, this saying that I'd heard a long time ago, which was basically, and I'm not gonna be able to probably say it word for word. I can but pull it up. You, yeah. Um, <laughs> go for it, man. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, we can go to it because I think I in, almost didn't know how to take it at the, the text that you I sent. Yeah. Like when you responded, you're like, I got to chew on this. I was like, man, I don't, I don't want to, things can be misread over text message very easily. Right. So I all right, like, here it is. I don't want to go down this. A good trader makes a good trade and feels triumph. A great trader makes a phenomenal trade and feels nothing. Exactly. And so I don't know. Do you, do you feel like you get what I was trying to say at the time? Yeah. Yeah. You definitely, uh, <laughs> you took the securitist route, but, um, before I forget, before I answer your question, I think that I, I think I'm, I might've lost what I was going to, what I was going to refer to now. Okay. I'll, I'll have to get back to what I was saying. So, uh, I agree with you on a lot of those points. Um, I don't know about the airplane thing because 
Uh, and I, again, there's a lot that I, I just don't, I'm not a brain scientist or a psychologist. I'm yeah, not really I, quite I, sure to figure that out, but I don't even know if I was saying the, there the is, right stuff. I'm sure there's physiological things that are happening to me when I'm in an airplane getting ready to jump out that I, I'm deconditioned to and may not notice that they're going on. Sure. Um, or maybe they are to the point where they're not really happening unless for instance, the jump is just at a heightened risk for mm-hmm. whatever reason. So we're out as opposed to just out having a normal, you, I can call my, I call, I call it a fun jump. Um, th- there really is a certain level of like, just, it's not, uh, lackadaisical. It's just like comfortability routine. Yeah. Right? And it's just like, okay, like, yep. I've already wrapped mapped this jump out in my head. I know how, mm-hmm. it, how it's going to go and be prepared for emergencies. Okay. I've also done this hundreds of times now. What don't want to get complacent, but still like that's, that's where, so the intermediate or the, the, the crux of the, of the, of those types of things is comes down to probably discipline, um, to not allow it to get to complacency, you know, taking that comfortability and that of the routine of you doing something hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, which is what it takes to get to a level of proficiency and then excellence and so on and so forth. And always interjecting the right amount of discipline to make sure that you're executing each thing mm-hmm. exactly the way you should. And then when you don't, or when something else, a variable arises to have the awareness to figure out what's going on and be able to solve the problem like as, as quickly as you can. So I right. think that's, that's one, a huge major factor that ends up, you know, delineating the best at my line of work and the, and the, and the very good mm-hmm. is, um, yeah, having that ability to, to the, the amount of awareness, self-awareness and or otherwise that uh, enables you to, to take in as much stimulus as possible mm-hmm. and, or some people, what some people would call risk or, or stress and being able to channelize all that into focus right. and then action and then deliberate action. So, What's another book I just got done reading? Um, I'm going to totally screw this up. But basically, uh, oh, it was uh, Good to Great. Yeah, I love that book. Yeah. So disciplined people make, taking, uh, or uh, well, how does he say it? He says disciplined people executing um, or exercising disciplined thought and taking disciplined action. That's like the major difference that his research showed you know, for people that, that, you know, great organizations. So, and well, I think a lot of that book, at least for what I took from it was, you know, really stressing humility as well. Right. That that's another huge, huge thing. And, oh, I know, I remember, I think I remember the point I was going to get back to. So, and you could argue, anyone could argue that like the millions and millions you could lose in five seconds on wall street affects so many lives that it's almost uncomparable to the fact that so many actions in my line of work are dealt in lives and mm-hmm. not not in money. And then, of course, there's all their, uh, the uh, adverse effects that come out of any, any military conflict situation or not even in conflict, but also in training is like, you know, the families or the politics or the whatever, whatever, whatever that's in, inherently wrapped up in each one of those situations. But I, I typically liken it to, yeah, I think a lot of people struggle in the military to have that kind of empathy or they like dial it way down and then they go home and they try to dial it way back up and they, they find themselves like out of balance all the time. Mm -hmm. I think that what I found is that it's easier to just 
be dialed up or not up, but like at a higher, but not as high as I can at any one level in mm-hmm. all, in all areas. So in my personal life, I'm not dialed on all the time where I'm Mr. Empathy and like ultra caring, loving at home. And maybe my wife would disagree with, would disagree with me because I do uh, like, I put so much value and commit so much into that relationship, but, um, I'm just, it's easier to be more even keeled through everything. Mm-hmm. Because if I don't show that empathy or a certain level of it, or the, you know, if you want to go down the emotional intelligence route, like if we're going to go down Daniel Goleman and hit him up, self-awareness, self-discipline, um, empathy, and those traits. If I don't, if I choose not to include those at my, at my work, it may be brushed off by my peers and subordinates and and superiors, but it's not, that's not easily done, so to speak. So it's not like you basically are labeled as like, okay, you know, I might be seen as more callous or more um, closed-minded, so to speak, mm-hmm. or just like not as mature. Sure. So if if I'm able to dial those things up at work and at home, then I'm able, like, yes, does that mean I, I might get more st- stressed or might m- fatigue easier? For sure, because it's hard to be dialed up all the time. But I feel like the the people, my peers at work and my family deserve the best of me in both areas. So can we talk about that in the, the, you know, very serious context of, you know, loss, um, you know, like loss of teammates and how you, you know, how you balance that, you know, with that. Um, I don't want to put words in your mouth at all. <clears throat> I know this was a topic that we had kind of discussed touching on. Um, you know, you have mentioned that, like you know, you've experienced a lot more loss than the average person does, especially at at this age. Yeah. Um. And so, you know, in that line of work, in your line of work, with the risks that are there, um, and I know, you know, over the last number of years, like that you've experienced it, um, even as in the public eye, you know, like the war has been winding right. down, that that doesn't necessarily mean that hey people we aren't you know losing right american military lives um you know how do you how do you find that balance how do you incorporate that into like not losing empathy you know not dialing that down not becoming callous um but you know still not letting it get in the way of you know your relationships at home and obviously doing your job at work yeah so that's uh that's a tough one for sure because um, you're right. It's in, it's inherent to the line of work, and you can. It's we don't definitely don't pretend like it can't happen. It's just like when you get at a certain level of you know where people are always striving for excellence, and you're constantly pushing the envelope of like how good you can really really be. It almost becomes like second thought. Like it, it would have to be something adverse or something completely random in order for someone at such a high level to, to, to die or be killed or something like that. It's almost like you, you like, Oh my God, I never would have expected that. It, like an afterthought when the reality is like, we're surrounded by so much risk and danger mm-hmm. at so many times that of course it's a very real possibility. And I think that, you know, if you can come to grips with that, like, okay, that's really, that's the first step uh, in the grieving process. In that sense, when you lose a mate is like, yeah, that is the job. Like, if you can't come to grips with that, then you're probably not in the line, in the right line of work, mm-hmm. uh, at first and foremost. And then, 
deeper than that, like what's your emotional connection? So this is a conversation I've recently had with my wife and I'll probably have it as long as I live is that like I'm constantly putting more and more value into my friendships and in, into um, my the relationships that I form every day. And I do that um, deliberately for a lot of different reasons because um, I feel like my life is more, I feel I get more enjoyment, more fulfillment out of life. Um, but then the, the side effect is like when you lose someone, like it's, um, that's a massive, massive loss. So otherwise would have been just like a coworker or someone you see in the hallway every day. Um, maybe you've spoke to them or maybe you knew them. Um, and there are very few, um, people who like take the time to really develop those deep emotional connections, um, but when they do, like it, it, I don't have to explain to anyone on this podcast, like how much more fulfilling those types of things are. Like it's, it, it's what makes life worth living. So at the end of the day, losing someone is as traumatic and as like sorrowful as it may be. Um, it's easier to come out through the whole experience knowing that like, you know what, for the portion of my life that I had, that I got to experience something with that person or have a relationship, it, it made me better. And, and I'm going to, not only am I going to learn from the experience of, of a mate being killed or, or something like that, but I'm also going to learn from what that person gave to me as, you know, like they're part of their legacy of anyone's legacy is the effect that they had on others throughout the span of their life. Right. So it's not just, you know, how do, how do you, how do your kids grow up and what are the type of people they're going to be? Or how did you, how did your neighbors know you to be? It's like, you know, like what kind of conversations did we have? Like what kind of person was Aaron or was Jared? Like, what are we going to say when the, when your time comes or when my time comes, like undoubtedly we're going to think back to this podcast or something like that, but we're also probably going to think back to every time we went and shared lunch together or had a beer or went out to Virginia to hunt pheasant or like, you know, those things who, who would have thought that when you and I first met that this would develop into anything like that. It took a deliberate commitment from both of us to really develop it into something that, that we both thought was not only worth our time and our investment, but it was worth way more than that. Like, I don't know about you. I can't speak for you, but I can say that like, this is as um, unorthodox as this relationship may have been at the start. It's, it's, it's surpassed that now it's transcended that into a different level where now like I'm getting emotional and mental like reinforcement and feedback of the, not only the type of person that I am, but the type of person that you are. I appreciate that, man. Well, of course. I definitely, uh, yeah, I would not have predicted this. Um, it was like laughing thinking about the fact that I think I still have that picture on my phone. Of, uh, <laughs> the tuxedos? You, you sitting next to Tim. and uh, You sent me that, yeah. Yeah. Aviators and, on at like two in the morning or something like that. Yeah, a little, uh, maybe a little tipsy. And then <laughs> the next morning, you will not remember this. Um, the next morning, waking up on the couch, like my son walking into the living room and, uh, you know, his, his hair color is not the same as mine. <laughs> And you being like, man, I don't know who the father of that kid is, but uh, <laughs> may not be you. I was like, wow, 
I'm like, you're welcome, man. <laughs> you can crash here anytime. Oh, wow. Now everyone knows that. <laughs> right? Yeah. Holy crap. I don't remember that. That's all right. It was... Uh, I was a, a little, I was a little taken aback at that moment, but uh, <laughs> I was like, you know what? I, I like the I like the moxie on this guy. That's that's a fucking ballsy move. Oh, I'm dying. So, but uh, and I was like, yeah, pretty sure Jared doesn't remember that. But, no, uh, I do remember falling over on the sidewalk, leaving the the bar. But anyway, it was yeah. a long night. Uh, yeah, I don't want to derail this. Um, you know, but, but you get my point, though. I mean, that's that's how I see it. I I'm, I may be a, an outlier in sure. my feelings about that sort of thing, but it, especially recently, like I've I've come around to the to the whole concept, like just being like being better people to to each other. It's like you know mm-hmm. what I mean. Like, is that how you 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 feel that experiencing so much loss, like at, at a much earlier age than most people do? You know, you mentioned earlier, it's like man. You know, most people don't start losing friends at the rate that yeah. I've lost friends until, you know, they're in their 60s, 70s, et cetera. Um, do you feel that that's what, you know, that's what this is has bestowed upon you is the silver lining? Uh, it's it certainly brought me, I may have always had some of these, some of the elements as mm-hmm. just growing up, but it certainly has like forced me into that position where I needed to make a decision. Like I can be more of a individual or I can be more of a, a part of the community. Mm -hmm. Um, and now I've got a long way to go for sure. Like there are, I don't like interact in my community. Like I wish I do, I would every day, but for the relationships that I do recognize as worth my time and my effort, like I, I I pour a hundred percent of myself into those, um, because of, for all the reasons that we've mentioned before, you know, like, mm-hmm. and you're right. You, we did talk about that. Like being in this line of work, I think war warfare aside, the combat aside, like it just inherently with the job and the risk that's involved, you tend to become, if not more of, uh, experienced in loss, but you definitely become more familiar with it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it affects people differently for sure. So, um, I don't want to give anyone the impression that I'm like s- skipping s- s- stages in the morning, you know, morning stages or anything like that. Sure. Um, because those are all extremely important stages. But um, the value that you place in each relationship, although it's it's if it were a roller coaster ride, it would mean that the first dip, knowing the initial knowledge of losing someone close to you, of course, is ever more astronomical mm-hmm. of, of a pitfall. Those two words should not be correlated with each other. <laughs> it's uh, that I, much longer it, of a fall. Sure. But then it, it the ride out of it is is a lot smoother. It's mm-hmm. just a lot smoother. Yeah. It's a lot easier to get to acceptance once you've realized like the value that you had in 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 those relationships. So sure. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um one of the other things I wanted to touch on was you know, is the fact that, you know, at some point you're going to be transitioning out of the military. And, you know, I think that that is probably an internal conversation or external conversation as far as when, you know, when that point will be. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if you want to talk about any of the, like the kind of injuries that you've sustained on the job and how that affects you um, specifically, but, I do want to talk about one thing that, you know, we'd 
previously discussed, which was, uh, you know, something you'd mentioned me before, which is like, hey, I don't ever want to get a tap on the shoulder at work saying, you know, like, hey, man, um, it's, you know, you're just time for you not to do this job anymore. That it's that it's your you should be the one to make that call before right. someone else makes it. Yeah. Um, and how you just how do you determine when that is? You know, because I assume, I mean, you want to push that up until you know, right to the edge of that line to maximize your time doing a job that you love, being at a place that you really want to be at um, without going over it. And so, how, you know, timing those things in general in life, you know, is very hard. Um, you know, who, whoever has ended a relationship with like an ex-girlfriend, like I, I did it right at the exact, at the exact <laughs> right moment, man, yeah. like before things got really bad. You yeah. know? Um, so, you know, knowing that that timing is really hard, how internally do you deal with that? And how are you, how are you thinking about that decision-making process, you know, right now? That's, I mean, that's not, that's not an easy one for sure. That's, um, in a way it's almost like a, another like kind of loss because, you know, you've committed so much of your life and so much of your time and, and your sweat into like making it a, a fulfilling career and then to be faced with, you know, the prospect of having to leave that. I mean, eventually it comes for everyone. So it's just like when for some it's sooner than others, but um, I think it, I think it goes back into, there's a, I've been saying there's I've saying I've had for um, man for years, as long, as long as I can remember in my military career. And that is, I've been getting out of the military since the day I got in. So Interesting. like, I, I don't know if I'm the exception with that, but it's basically like it boils down to you, you, you can't, you never can put all your eggs in one basket, period, no matter what it is. Mm -hmm. And people are like, well, you know, you would risk your, you go to overseas and you risk your life and all this other stuff. And yeah, that's all part of like that. But I may put 101 eggs in one basket, but I'm always going to have at least one egg in another basket because you never know when that can be gone. Mm -hmm. Like, especially in a high risk job, like, if for some reason you make a mistake, which I've done plenty of in the past, or you, or just any other random thing happens where you can't do that job anymore, you're that much more at a loss if you haven't prepared for that separation. So a part of me has been separating from the very moment I came in because if something changed that I didn't like and I was determined to not wind up in a career that I hated for 20 years mm -hmm. or didn't want to be a part of. So... Um, I've been preparing myself for this decision for a long time. I'm not at it yet because it's the job is just too good. Um, but I'm I'm getting I'm I'm edging ever closer, and uh, so there's a lot there is a lot to think about. You know where where's my family at financially? Where are we at um, as a as a relationship as a partnership? Like, can we handle something like this? Because there of course there's going to be stresses that are involved with with tr that transition, and of course the unknown like. Oh my gosh, you know, can you, uh, thank God I'm, I'm not worrying that I can function in a normal civilian society because, um, I've always pretended like I'm not in the military <laughs> <laughs> except for when I'm actually in a uniform. Right. But, um, so it's easier to like, you know, I, I'm not going to go through the struggles that some people have of like how, how to cope with the fact that you're, you know, you're you're not going to get a sustenance pay uh you know allotment in your paycheck you're not going to get 
healthcare is not going to come directly out of your paycheck. You know, you're not going to be able to drive two minutes down the road to your military hospital where you're going to get everything. You know what I mean? Like all those things that we take for granted or you go on a trip somewhere and you know that someone's going to make sure that you have a place to sleep and take a shower. Like more than likely someone's already thought of that for you. So all, all all of these things that, that we take for granted. So um, what about, I mean, within your current role, you know, is there a, a point, do you have like a, I guess kind of a hard line where, Hey, if I can't do X anymore, then it's time for me to, to leave this, this that's, specific job. That's entirely individual. It's a personal decision for sure, because there are so many aspects to the job that are adaptable to different people. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's a credit to the organization for sure. We've, it's been built out to the point where it's like, Hey, if you can't give in this aspect, perhaps there's something else that you can give mm-hmm. back in because it's all, you know, that whole service first mentality, like, and by and large, the organization is made up entirely of people or almost entirely of people who are there to give. Mm-hmm. So it's always like, what else can we do to keep this person around? Because they're, they've been serving since they got here. They want to continue to serve so on and so forth. So for every person, it's different. Some people are, they never reach their peak performance wise and still decide that, you know what, this isn't for me and I'm going to leave anyway. So it's, it's how, entirely how individual. How will you make that decision? Well, the reason like I'm getting closer, you know, so health is, is an issue for me. So it's the, the ever present knowledge that I'm unable to physically keep up with a lot of people. And that's just a part of getting older, no doubt mm-hmm. about it. But, um, when I first got to the organization, my first team leader was like 39 and I was 20, I was in my mid twenties and, uh, he regularly outperformed me. So at that point I, that was a, another wake up call. Like, Holy crap. I'd been through all this training. I, I'm Matt, I'm successful so far. Like I've reached a whole new high in my career only to get to my next assignment and be completely just worked over mm-hmm. by a guy like almost twice my age. Like, holy crap, man. So that's like, okay, now that bar set way up there. I know what I have, what I get to it, you know, to try to achieve. And I've been trying to achieve that every day I, I would go to work. Um, and, th- and that's kind of like, it's a notional, it's a notional bar mm-hmm. that I may never reach and I probably, probably won't. But the point is like, n- I've been driving towards it. And as long as everyone else can see that I'm driving towards it and I know they're driving towards it too, then, then I know that like, okay, I'm doing the right thing. And then, so when people are, when I'm unable to like r- physically keep up to, to a certain extent and that's mission dependent, then I know that like, okay, it's probably time. And of course, like the, since the mission can tend to be so variable, I would have to, it's on me as a as an as an adult as a, as a as a big boy to make it a judgment call like am I going to become a liability if I have to go out the door tomorrow and do something um based on the you know the parameters of that mission is there any chance that I might become a liability as opposed to an asset and if there's any question in my mind then it's on me to say like okay I have to take take myself out of that because what I'm risking then is not myself at all. I'm risking my mates and I'm risking the mission too. So, which mm-hmm. I, I could never live with, you know what I mean? That's not something I could ever be okay with. Like, Oh, I, I, I got enough. I, I got enough. I'll just tighten my boots a little bit harder and pull up my pants and, I, and I'll make this happen. Like that's, an, that's entirely too risky. That's not something that I could ever be okay with. That'd be a horrible, selfish decision, right? Right. 
Yeah. So, well, <clears throat> as you go through the, you know, kind of into the the transition period out of the military, you know, whether that starts soon or, you know, a few years from now, I mean, at some point you will be transitioning. Um, you know, what, what do you think will be the future path for you? Uh, I know what I'm, you know, I know the general direction I want to go. I don't know, uh, what's the analogy I use. I don't know if I used it with you the other day. I was, I was talking to somebody about it, but, um, I read in a book somewhere, uh, it might've even been good to great where he's talking about how, you know, every organization is a bus mm-hmm. and they're, you know, you, you got to have the right people on the bus before you start moving in whatever direction that you want to go. So, uh, along the same lines of that analogy, I, I, um, it's, I sort of picture myself as someone who's, who's on a bus that's about to reach a stop and I'm, I'm about to get off. And then when I get to that next bus stop, I'm going to be standing around. I might have to stand around for a while until I find the right bus. So, um, you know, you could take that analogy a million, million different directions, but, but I need to find the right bus in order to get on. And uh, hopefully that's an organization that's looking for someone like me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just going to, you know, I, I do a decent job of networking and I'm going to hopefully use that to, to hopefully, you know, get in touch with who knows, I believe everything happens for a reason. And so, um, hopefully I'll make that connection and find, uh, a second career that I, that I, you know, that empowers me to, to continue to, to excel and be a better person. And, uh, hopefully someday I, I'm successful enough to be able to give back like in a greater sense, not just to my organization or my family or my circle of friends, but like to the world in general. So it's pretty awesome, man. Pretty awesome to hear you put it like that. It's, uh, <laughs> Well, no. I, if I, I got to listen to this later, because I'm going to be like, man, I sound like an idiot. <laughs> no, I think it's great. You know, most people, I don't think, could articulate it that way. Um, and I also have no doubt that you will, you will succeed what you set out to do, even if you don't know exactly what that is right now. So I've got some ideas, but I think they're too much in their in their nascent stages to really yeah. to really say like, oh, that's it. Maybe when I come back on the podcast again, I'll be like, Next time. check out That's this right. foundation that I'm a part of now or this organization. Hey, man. You got, a, <laughs> you got a bunch of decisions to make before yeah. those even get made. That's you right. Know, lots of bridges to cross. Yeah. So, well, I appreciate you joining us here today. We really uh, enjoy it whenever you get to come down and visit, and hopefully we can do it again. Yeah. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. It was a good time. Thank you.